welcome to Crossview Radio, weekly podcast for Wayne County. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We exist to glorify God by exalting Christ and magnifying the gospel for the joy of all nations. Well, we are back up and running here at the start of the new year, and I thought, what other topic to get us off the ground than the topic of modesty? This is something that I have been wanting to talk about for quite some time, and am looking forward to getting into this today. And as we begin, I want to make it clear that I am aware of two primary reactions to what I'm about to say uh, today and, Lord willing, uh, next week in, in the continuation of this. Either, number one, you will think that I am an overbearing legalist, a frozen relic of an ancient, insignificant, and failed cultural experiment, or you'll think that I'm placating the antinomians by not being specific and detailed enough. And I would suspect, if I had to guess, that the primary response is going to be the former, namely that I am an overbearing legalist Neanderthal. But that being what it is, we'll give it a go and let the chips fall where they will. And I'd like to begin today with a couple of observations. We almost need a prerequisite course before we even get into the heart of this conversation. And so today's podcast will be more of the prerequisites, and Lord willing, next week we'll get more into the heart of the matter. Today, I just want to share four observations with you um, as kind of uh, the groundwork, if you will, for uh, getting into more details next week. And so let's start with these uh, start with the first one here. Observation number one, some people attempt to nullify the command to be modest by generalizing the application. Okay, Some people are going to attempt to nullify this command by generalizing the application. One strategy that is frequently employed to get around biblical commands is to take a command and to generalize it so much that it essentially means nothing. If a command has no particular application, then it's really not even a command at all, or at least it's kind of negated in our, in our minds. And so the, the general command, the general call to be modest has particular applications. To be modest, generally speaking, is to avoid drawing attention to yourself. That's the most basic meaning of this term. But to be modest particularly is to avoid wearing that specific shirt or to avoid wearing that specific skirt that is uh, revealing in some kind of a way. But if we were to generalize this command, it would mean that we would avoid specific applications. We would avoid particularizing the command. So someone will say, you know, yes, I agree that we should be modest, But who's to say that that specific low-cut top is immodest? Aren't you being a little bit legalistic? Aren't you willing to, uh, shouldn't you be willing to let the spirit lead that person and just, you need to stay out of it? After all, their heart is what matters. Every time there is a conversation about modesty, it is always 
those who are rebelling against the command that bring up the heart issue, or maybe uh, always is too much, but most of the time it is those who are trying to rebel against this command who bring in the heart issue. They might say, well, you can't see my heart, so you don't know whether I'm being modest or not. Modesty is the disposition of my heart and my temperament, and I can tell you that I am being modest. Now, in Christianity, it is very, very, very important to make sure that we get to a particular application and not just to a general one. Uh, a general application is no application. Now, now, now uh, let me um, clarify this a little bit. I don't mean that we can't give general applications, okay? In fact, we do need to because there's no way that we will be able to give applications to the thousands and the millions of individual instances um, of, of these applications. So we do need to give general applications, but what, what I'm meaning by this is that a general application always has to work its way to get to a particular application. So, for example, if the command not to murder is kept in the realm of the general, then you will never get around to that application, meaning you specifically cannot murder that specific person. And so this general application has to work itself out to a very particular application. If, if the command to be modest has no particular application, then it really has no application at all. Antinomians tend to focus on general uh, um, applications. And the reason for this is because they want to relativize the applications. There is a postmodern influence in the desire to make applications. Will you apply it how you apply it and I'll apply it how I apply it? It's true through you, it's true through me. Da, 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 da. This is very important. And actually, let me just say this one more time, okay? Antinomians tend to focus on general applications so that they can be relativized. When antinomians say that modesty is an issue of the heart, what they mean, or what they're trying to say, is that the internal state of the heart does not express itself externally. Or at least they're saying that the internal state of the heart could express itself externally in different ways, in ways that may not be considered uh, traditionally acceptable kind of a thing. This is why if you say that a woman in a bikini is immodest, that a very common rebuttal is something like this. Who are you? to say that she's being immodest. After all, you can't see her heart. Now, what this assumes is that modesty is only in the heart and never external. This is a serious mistake. Now, to be sure, modesty is an issue of the heart, okay? But it, but it will always have external ramifications. This is, this is what every command is like. Murder is an issue of the heart first, but it has external ramifications. What the Bible means when it says that any command is, is first an issue of the heart is that it has its roots in the heart, but then it bears fruit in a person's behavior. So an antinomian could dress immodestly, but then claim that they have a modest heart and disposition, and then they exempt themselves from this command altogether. They exempt themselves from the application so that at this point, modesty doesn't mean anything. Modesty can mean something different to every person. If it's only a matter of the heart, modesty is only a matter of the heart and it is not a matter of externals at all. 
then modesty could mean anything that a person wants it to be, particularly those who are coming at it from a postmodern bent. Okay, this would be like someone confronting a murderer, okay? And the murderer says, who are you to say that I'm a murderer? You can't see my heart. You, you can take any command. Who, when someone says, who are you to say they're being immodest? You can't see their heart. You take that to any command. Who, who are you to say I'm a liar? You can't see my heart. You don't know what my motivation was. What this does is this relativizes and nullifies the biblical commands toward modesty. Why have these commands at all if they mean nothing or if they could mean whatever you want them to mean? Thus, what we are saying is this, okay? Always bring general applications into the realm of the particular. General applications won't mean anything if they are never particularized, if they are never brought into concrete external manifestations, which is what the, the, the point of, of Scripture is, is to change our, our, our behavior. Yes, it starts in the heart. And so the, the first task of the gospel is to change a person's heart so that they love Christ and they love his commands and they want to obey him. But, but the Bible indicates also, particularly in the book of 1 John, that if you don't have any external change, then that's evidence that there was no internal change to begin with. And so if someone is saying, I don't have to, to, to do any of these external particulars, they're evidencing that nothing has changed on the heart level. That's the first observation. Observation number two is this. Women are not a protected class. Now, it is hard uh, for me to believe that I have to say this, but it is very necessary given our current cultural climate. The influence and impact of feminism goes deeper and further than we could ever imagine, and it has influenced the church in a significant way, more significant than most people tend to recognize. Now, I want to give you a litmus test. Now, the disclaimer to this is that this is not a unique to me. I've heard this litmus test before, but I think it's a good one. Go and attend your average run-of-the-mill evangelical church in America. And in order to run this test, you need to attend this church for two services, the Mother's Day service and the Father's Day service, okay? This would assume that they're giving the standard topical sermons on these two days. Now, generally speaking, generally speaking, if the church is influenced by feminism, there's going to be a very uh, distinct difference between the two messages. If the church is influenced by feminism, the Mother's Day service will sound something like this. We are so thankful for you mothers. You run the world. You're so special and we couldn't do anything without you. And we think of you. We have all the feels. So fathers and children, make sure you pamper your wife and mother and give her the royal treatment because of how special she is. Okay. And then go and attend the Father's Day sermon, and you will hear something like this. Fathers, you need to shape up and man up, because you can destroy your home so easily, and you need to recognize that you need to stop being a deadbeat and a loser. Don't you know your attitude and behavior has a serious impact on your home and your family? So grow up and stop being so harsh with your family, okay? Now, the difference can be seen not only in the different language used and the tone, but in the application as well. Mother's Day, applica Mother's Day sermon applications are for the fathers. And Father's Day sermon applications are for the fathers. <laughs> you preach a Mother's Day sermon and you apply it by telling the fathers to go and pamper their wives and take them out for lunch. But the mothers don't get any application. And you preach a Father's Day sermon and you apply it to the fathers too. 
Now, if, if your church is doing this, okay, that, th- th- then this, this is an indication, it is a litmus test that is demonstrating that, that your church is falling prey to some of the undercurrents of feminism in our culture. The reason for this discrepancy is because many pastors are afraid, are fearful, are generally, gen- genuinely fearful to make sermon applications for women. Women today in the 21st century West are generally considered a protected class, which means that nobody, especially men, are permitted to call out the sins of women. And first in line in the list of sins that men are not allowed to call women out on is the sin of immodesty, which means that this podcast, in this podcast, I am doubly guilty of committing the unpardonable sin in today's culture. Keep in mind that the Bible does single out women, and it does call out women for their sins. Now, what's going on in the culture right now is that feminism and cultural Marxism and feminist liberation theology has had a serious impact on culture. It is popular once you've created a victim class to paint that victim class in such a way so that the people in that class are protected and never could be accused of wrongdoing. The Bible does not have the same androgynous values that we have. It treats men and women differently because we are different, meaning that men are frequently vulnerable to kinds of sins that women are less vulnerable to, and women are frequently vulnerable to kinds of sins that men are less vulnerable to. We don't like to point that out, even though the Bible does. And the Bible often tells the men to act one way and the women to act a different way. Just consider the pastor who stands in the pulpit and shouts out with some conviction in his chest, and he says, men, stop looking at porn and instead love your wives. You'll get a thousand amens, as you should. But consider that same pastor with the same robust conviction who shouts out, women, stop wearing revealing clothing and tempting men to lust over you and cover up your body. You will not get half the amens out of that. You'll, in fact, you'll actually get probably more likely a bunch of gasps and a bunch of how dare yous. It is because of this that we know that women are a protected class in our society. And if we are going to be faithful to scriptural, scripture, we have to demolish this particular way of thinking about men, women, culture, and scripture. Okay, that's number two. So, um, the, 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 the second prerequisite is basically um, uh, laying some groundwork as we are going to be talking about modesty, particularly uh, with regard to women, um, that, uh, th- that the Bible does single out men and women separately, frequently, as having different um, besetting sins. It doesn't mean there's not overlap, but it does mean that there is... Um, uh, particular sins that we tend to struggle with more than, 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 than women and women more than men. All right. Number three, observation number three is this. Immodesty is primarily a woman problem. Okay. I am talking, uh, about physical dress here in this area. And I know, and nobody has to tell me, I understand that immodesty is an everybody problem, okay? But it cannot be doubted that it is primarily a woman problem. And this is because of what we just observed, that men and women are different and they frequently sin in different ways. 
there is, the biblical evidence of this is that the call to modesty is given primarily to women. Okay? Uh, in, in fact, I don't know of any passage that calls men to, to be modest. This can be seen in 1 Timothy 2.9, where it is said that the women should adorn themselves with modesty. Okay? 1 Timothy 2.9, also 1 Peter 3.3-5. 3, 3 the passage does not use, 1 Peter does not use the word modest, but it does describe it. It describes it by calling women specifically, and, and, and specifically women, to an internal adorning of themselves rather than an external one. Women are not to devote themselves to external adorning, but to cultivate modesty through a gentle and quiet spirit and specifically through submission to their own husbands. Think of it this way, okay? Men and women sin in complementary ways. The man's primary temptation in this area is to lust, and the woman's primary temptation is to be lusted after. And it fits hand in glove. This is why the Bible calls the women primarily to dress modestly, and it primarily calls the man to flee from lust. Okay? You don't have many, if any, biblical commands to women not to lust. All the commands in, in Scripture um, that, that, that I'm aware of uh, saying that you ought to flee from lust are directed towards men. And all the passages I'm aware of in Scripture that call us to modesty are directed towards women. A man wants to see and a woman wants to be seen. A woman wants to catch a man's eye, and a man wants his eye to be caught. Thus, while it is true that men can and do dress immodestly, and I'm not denying this, I'm, I'm affirming this, it does end up being predominantly a woman's issue. And if you don't believe this, just open up your eyes the next time you're out in town. This is primarily something that women are engaging in, okay? That's observation number three. Observation number four, and the final one, is this, sex is good. I want to offer a counter to a very popular way of talking about modesty. Traditionally, modesty was discussed in olden days by completely avoiding the good and only discussing the bad. We heard a lot about the don't, but very little about the do. Modesty is God's way to protect something that is glorious and is good. One of the reasons that sex gets a bad rap is because there are several religions where it is treated as sinful, as dirty, or as a result of the fall. Keep in mind that the Catholic background and heritage is that virginity is better than marriage. Think of the supposed holiness of the priests and their requirement to remain single. Or one might think of the Shaker community that believed uh, celibacy was superior to marriage. Uh, one doesn't need to be a rocket scientist to figure out what happened to that community. If, if the information I have is still up to date today, there are exactly two remaining shakers in existence uh, today living in the community of Maine. And again, you don't have to be a rocket scientist why there's only, to figure out why there's only two left. Somehow, and I don't know how, this influence has crept into Christian circles so much so that if someone says we ought to be modest, the response is, oh, you're just an old-fashioned Puritan who's disgusted by the idea of sex. And on that topic, I have a very interesting thing that I must tell you, and that is this. The Puritans 
interestingly enough, had a very high view of sex. The Puritans were anything but, quote-unquote, puritanical on this topic. One anonymous Puritan, for example, said that a husband and wife in marriage may joyfully give due benevolence to one another as two musical instruments rightly fitted do make a most pleasant and sweet harmony in a well-tuned concert. Tim Challies uh, has a good short little blog post on this topic where he gives numerous quotes from the Puritans that you may want to look up to see this. Uh, Tim, Ch- just Google Tim Challies um, and and uh, Puritans uh, on on uh, on sex. I think it's um, entitled. Actually, let me get it for you. It's called The Puritans and Sex by Tim Challies, and that has a number of um, quotes that will, I think, uh, demolish the view that that the Puritans were uh, disgusted by this particular topic. In any event, sex and marriage ought to be celebrated, and modesty is designed to protect that celebration, not to assault it. A husband and wife pursue modesty because it is something that protects, cherishes, and enhances the depths of sexual love that is available to them in their marriage. One person once described sexual desire as a raging river. And if that river is, if that raging river is flowing uh, in, in, a sh- in shallow banks, then the river chaotically goes anywhere and everywhere. This illustrates the man or woman who's seeking out porn or who's engaging uh, adultery or who is dressing provocatively. Rather, the, 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 in marriage, the river ought to be protected by deep canyon walls What this does is this redirects our focus so that the assault should not be leveled on the raging river or on its strength. We're not saying that river is just too strong. That river is just raging too much. No, 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 no. That's not where the assault is going. The assault should be leveled against those who have shallow walls. In other words, what we're saying within marriage, we are advocating in favor of the strong and raging river. We are pro the strong and raging river. We are for the the depths of sexual love to be expressed between a husband and wife. We are promoting a rich and vigorous sexual experience between a husband and wife. And that's what modesty is seeking to do. It is, it is seeking to be one, uh, one more stone or one more brick that is kind of building these deep, Walls, these deep canyon walls, where um, where the uh, sexual desire between husband and wife is able to uh, be strong, is able to uh, rage, and all of those things. We're simply saying that it ought not be chaotic and unruly. But in order to build those deep canyon walls, one has to say no to many things. One must say no to pornography, to lustful thoughts to giving the billboard a second look, to pursuing other women, to exposing one's body to others through sinful immodesty, and so on and so forth. Another way of saying this is is this. We are against a chaotic display of passion as demonstrated in immodesty, porn, and adultery. We are for an orderly display of passion by channeling 100% of that passion into your spouse. Immodesty dilutes marriage passion. Modesty enhances it. 
By building deep canyon walls, sexual passion within marriage is able to flourish. It is able to thrive. It is able to be a raging river. You are protecting the marriage bed by limiting it to just that one husband and wife, just those two people. Immodesty is sinful because in a way it shares the marriage bed with multiple partners. A woman who is exposing herself publicly shares a piece of her marriage bed with every single man who sees her. Instead of saying, this is for my husband, she says, this is for every man that I meet in the street. That is not honoring the marriage bed. Hebrews 13.4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. May we be counted among those who honor and cherish the marriage bed. May we be among those who celebrate the passion and sexual love, a good gift that God has given to us, his creatures. And may we be counted among those who protect this good gift through the biblical command to be modest. Thanks for listening to Crossview Radio. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We meet Sundays at 10 a.m. To find out more about Crossview Church, visit us online at crossvieworville.com.